Well, amen. What a great truth that song, He Cares for You. First Peter um, 5, 6, and 7 says this. I thought of this while they were singing. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, in the mighty hand of God, that it may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. And I thought about that as they were singing. There's a, a great truth in that song and a great truth about the Lord caring for you. I think sometimes we don't really understand the truth of that until we get our to a place in life where people can't help us and people we love and people love us and they've done all they can do and and then you just got to learn to cast all of it on him and you'll find out there's a great god that cares for you and it's a, a great great peace what a great truth all right have your bibles open with me if you will to philippians chapter number two philippians chapter number two when you find verse number five if you're physically able to do so and I invite you to stand with your feet, me, please, out of respect of God's word. Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse number 5. Do we get this back yet? Yes, no, no. That might be a problem. It was up here where it belongs, wouldn't it? <laughs> all right, now how's that? That's a lot better. That's my fault. It was on all along. Now we're. He's trying to get volume out of it, and now it's too loud. Philippians chapter 2, uh, turn, you got me Philippians chapter 2, verse number 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and giving him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Verse number 12 is the text verse tonight, and we'll pull a phrase out of that, and I want us to read that together. You ready? Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I want to take that last phrase of that verse. It's an oft misunderstood passage of Scripture, and it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that passage is not making reference to trying to earn your salvation, but that it's got to be clear in your own mind. You have to work it out in your own mind. There's great truth in that. And so I'm taking that thought and putting it this, five things you must do for yourself, 
Five things you must do for yourself. It's got to work out in your own mind. Nobody else can do them for you, and you can't do them for anyone else. And so I'm going to take that thought. Five things that you must do for yourself. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for allowing us to be able to come back and have this time together again tonight in our house. Lord, we thank you for our little children as they come and quote and sing. What a blessing they are. And then, Lord, we've enjoyed the fellowship of God's people and Lord, we've enjoyed the singing of praises of Zion and hearing them sung around the throne of God tonight. And now, Father, we've come to this portion of the service and the bread of life has been broken and I have a, yea, Lord, a great responsibility, Lord, a great privilege to stand before thy people in thy house and deliver a message. And once again, I am very well aware of my inability and my unworthiness. And so once again, I ask you to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me with the blood of Calvary and the Holy Ghost. I pray you'd fill me with power. I could speak in such a manner that everyone that's here would feel like this message is for them and them alone. And may, Lord, I be able to speak with clarity of mind and thought and speech. And Lord, may we leave this place with a great determination that there are some things that we're going to do for ourselves that only we can do. And we'll thank you and praise you for what's going to be done in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at this passage of Scripture, there's several things just sort of on the surface of it that you see. We find in verse number 5, it's an interesting passage where he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now there's a great truth there. He's saying each one of us needs to have a mindset and a, a, a solidness in our mind the way the Lord Jesus had. He knew who He was. He knew His purpose and what he was doing, and then you see the glory that's applied to the Lord, and how that he has a name that's exalted above every name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. Now, there's a great truth in that. So one of these days, every one of us is going to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we see that principle here that's given to us. Now, in this then, in verse 12, when he says now, he starts out and he says, Wherefore, my beloved... As you have obeyed, not always in my presence, but much more in my absence. He says, now, there's some things you need to do. <coughs> you did them when I was with you, but much more in my absence. Paul's not there now. He's writing to the Philippians from a Roman jail. And he's saying, I'm not there now, but listen, I'm trying to encourage you to keep doing the right thing. I want you to keep serving God and keep doing that which is right. I want you to obey God. And then when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This thing of our salvation is something we ought to take serious. It ought not to be something that we look at flippantly. It ought to be something that we look at with a very sober-mindedness. That we are, are looking at who we are and who He is. We are the ones that at some point in time must bow and confess that He is God. He is the one that is King of kings and Lord of lords. And this, this thing of, uh, of our relationship of He's the Savior and I'm the one that's being saved, I have to bear that in mind. And it, uh, it ought to be serious to me. It ought to be something that, that I work out in my own heart and my own mind. And it ought to be something that I pay attention to. Now having said that, I think sometimes that slothfulness is the shortest way of two things. There's a lot of people in hell tonight that never intended to go to hell. 
There's a lot of people in hell tonight that just kept putting it off. Not now. Being slothful about it. I'm not going to do it now. I've got plenty of time. And they didn't have plenty of time. And they died and went to hell. By the way, I have found out as a personal thing in my own walk with Christ, and as a child of God and as a pastor that, you know, another thing that happens is sometimes as Christians, we keep putting things off, and we're slothful in our Christian walk and in things that we know that God uh, would have us to do, and we become slothful in that. And it is the shortest way to get backslidden. It is the shortest way to get uh, to where that we're complacent and we're not doing what God wants us to. It's just putting off what I know I need to do. And boy, we could say that in a lot of areas of our lives. And so tonight there are some things that I've got to do for me that I, no one else can do it for me. And there are some things that you've got to do for you that no one else can do it for you. By the way, I'll take it a step further. Hey, Parents, grandparents, there's some things your children and grandchildren have to do that you can't do for them. There's great truth in that. As a matter of fact, as I work my way through this message a little bit tonight, I think sometimes we, we, we don't grasp that. And we don't understand that this is a personal walk with the Lord. It is a personal salvation and that's why he says, let every man work out his own salvation with fear and trembling. This is a personal thing. I can't do it for anyone else, and they cannot do it for me. No matter how much they love me or how much I love them. And so there are five things we're going to look at tonight. Number one, I want you to open your Bible, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. Now in Luke chapter 15, we're going to see a very familiar passage. And, and, and we're, we're going to look at a familiar parable. And uh, uh, Jesus is, we're going to start in verse number 11. And he's using this to uh, a parable for an explanation. But I want you to notice something here. And I'm going to pull something out of this parable that every one of us must do at some point in time in our life. Luke chapter 15, verse number 11. And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with a husk that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said... How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. 
Make me as one of thy hired servants. Now here's a great truth. At some point in time, all of us must come to ourselves. That's an interesting passage. At some point in time, every one of us must come to ourselves. That we recognize the condition we're in is no one's fault but mine. I must recognize that what's happening in my life, I cannot blame it on the world. I can't blame it on my parents. I can't blame it on my friends. I can only say, I did this to me. Now, by the way, this is true with salvation. It's true with service. There comes a point in time that every one of us must come to ourselves in salvation. You see, nobody can make the choice to trust Christ for me but me. And nobody can make the choice for you to trust Christ but you. Everyone must come to themselves with that. Everyone must come to a point they realize I'm on my way to hell. They're like this young man. They must come to a point they realize I've done everything I can do. I've did it my way. I, I've, I've went into a far country. I've wasted everything I've got. And when he come to himself, God the Father has done it all anyhow. Now, by the way, that's true in salvation. I've, I recognize that we can encourage people. And I realize that we can pray for people and we can, can plead with people to, to be saved. But you know what has to happen? They must come to themselves that they need salvation. They need it. Uh, and, and this was a sort of a hard thing for me to learn as a teenager. And the reason being is, is because the first time I heard the gospel, I got saved. And, and, and so it was hard for me to recognize that I had come to myself sitting in that classroom. It was hard for me to recognize that I had come to a point, and I did, by the way. As I look back on it, I understand it a lot better than I did then from a spiritual basis. But when Charlie Shaver told me I was going to hell, and he literally held me over hell a little bit, and I could see myself going to hell, and I could see I had no hope, and that everything I'd been doing was wrong, and that I could not in any way, shape, form, or fashion save myself. And he took the Scripture and showed me in the Bible that I had no hope. There was a coming to myself at this point. It's like I'm in trouble. And there had to be a point of repentance. And that's the point here. There must be a point in every individual's heart that you come to yourself and there's a repentance. A repentance just simply means a change of mind. It's a change of direction. It should change your life. But there has to be a repentance and salvation. You quit trusting in your own self. Quit trusting in religious rituals and rites. And you come to a point that you trust Christ and Christ alone. Now, nobody can do that for you. I can't do it for anyone else. I remember after I got saved, and I was the first one saved my family, I couldn't do it for my parents. I couldn't do it for my brother. I went back to school and started trying to talk to some of my friends, and I couldn't do it for them. They have to come to it themselves. Boy, sometimes we don't like that. Sometimes we'd like to be able to do it for people. And we'd like to sort of be able to sort of drag them into it, but you can't. It is a personal decision that everyone must come to themselves 
and of their own free will and their own free volition, just like this young man who came to himself and said, I need to repent. And that's what he did. The truth of the matter is we must come to ourselves in repentance, whether it's salvation, by the way. Sometimes as a child of God, we get stubborn with the things of God. We get stubborn in doing what God wants us to do. And, and we must come to ourselves. Every once in a while we get very complacent in our spiritual walk. I've been saved long enough now that I, I understand what I'm talking about here. Sometimes we get very complacent and we get sort of lackadaisical in our service and in our walk and what we're doing for the Lord. Not doing anything that we would say is sinful, not doing anything that the world would say is wrong. As a matter of fact, a lot of times people look at it and say, man, that's a good man or a good woman. They're good godly people, good Christians. But the truth of the matter is, every once in a while I need to come to myself and have a point to where that I say, am I serving Mike or am I serving Christ? I've got myself in a far country here and got myself in trouble. Especially if I lose my peace and I lose my joy and I lose the, the will to serve Christ. I, I need to come to myself like this young man and go back to the Father and say, Father, I've sinned. I'm not worthy of anything. Just, just, just let me be a servant. The truth of the matter is, no one can do that for me and no one can do that for you but you. So number one, I must come to myself both in salvation and service. Number two, let's get another passage. Why don't you go to Joshua 24. Boy, some of you know where we're headed with this passage already before we ever get there. Joshua 24, verse 14 and 15. Now Joshua is well in years at this point. He has gathered all the children of Israel together. They have taken the promised land. This is his last time that he will address the, the princes and the rulers together at one time. And he's giving them his final farewell. And he says something here that's very important. And you find in verse number 14 of Joshua chapter 24, we begin reading there. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the side of the flood and in Egypt. And serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Where the gods which your fathers served are under the side of the flood, are the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, by the way, there must come a time not only that I come to myself, but there must come a time when I choose to serve the Lord. And there's a great truth in this. A few years ago, a couple of years ago, I preached in one of our Bible colleges in a chapel meeting. It was on a Friday, and they had me come preach. There were several, several hundred young people that have chosen to go to Bible college. And a lot of them, this, this particular Bible college was one that uh, really it's just training preachers and missionaries and folks in full-time service. And so I go to this Bible college, and I'm preaching there. Now, by the way, y'all know I didn't go to college. So here I am standing in front of a bunch of kids that's got more education than I do already, and I'm giving them something. And I'm asking God, God, all the way up there, what is it that you want me to say to these young people? 
I don't deserve to be here. The man that's the president of the college and started the college is my friend, and I love him, and I sure didn't want to embarrass him or make him feel like I'd wasted his time or their time. And I'm asking God what to say, and God gave me something out of this passage. Now here's the great truth. Every one of us must choose to serve God. Now here's something that none of us as parents like. And here's what I mean by this. And here's what I said to these young people. I said, for the great vast majority of you, you were raised in a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching home. Your parents probably took you to church from the time you were born. The time you graduated high school, you were faithful Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and probably every revival, everything in between. The great vast majority of you, that is probably true, and it was true and is true. Nothing wrong with that, but it's true. What we as adults probably don't like sometimes is, do you recognize that they have to choose that themselves at some point? There's great truth in that. All three of my kids are grown now. All three of them are on their own. Carl and are married, got kids of their own. But they have to choose whether they're going to serve God or not. I can't make that choice for them. My mom and dad couldn't make that choice for me, by the way. Now, one of the things that I've learned down through the years is people say, well, what is it that we can do to keep our young people? Well, nothing. I know that may sound like a bad statement. They have to choose it themselves. There has to come a point in your life that you choose that you're going to serve God. Now, nobody can do that for you. Nobody can do it. Nobody can force you into it. Nobody can coerce you into it. It is some decision that you make on your own. Now, there again, as I was driving to preach at this place, I began to Lord deal my heart about this message and doing what I would say to these young people on this particular point. I began thinking, when, when did I make that choice? Now, here's the truth. Every one of us makes that choice. I made that choice the morning I got saved. I didn't realize it then, but I realized it then. I realized I began to look at this. I, that morning, there was a lot transpired when Charlie, when Charlie gave me the gospel. And I had to make up my mind. One of the things that the devil did that morning, sitting on one shoulder, and Charlie trying to get me to get saved in front of him, me making a choice, was I thought this. If I make this choice, I'm in trouble. If I choose to get saved, my parents are not saved, my friends are not saved, Nobody I know understands this. And when I make this choice, I am on my own. Now, by the way, all of that wasn't exactly true. There was a spiritual truth in that, but in my mind, it was I'm making a choice. And if I choose to trust Christ, I am stepping away from everybody and everything that I know. Now, that wasn't exactly true. They didn't understand the decision I'd made because they wasn't saved themselves. And I didn't get any enemies or any backlash out of it. Well, let me rephrase it, not much. 
I got some. I got some. And, but it wasn't near what was in my mind. But at that moment, I had to make a choice, and I decided I'm not going to hell. I can't go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. And it doesn't matter to me what anybody else does or doesn't do. And, and whatever happens to me, so be it. I cannot go to hell. I made that choice. I didn't realize it then, but that choice fo has followed me, by the way, all through my life. And every once in a while people say, I don't think kids can make that choice. I was 13 years old and I made that choice. I am not going to go to hell and I am going to follow Christ. Now, it, I didn't realize the impact of it then. And I told that group of young people at Bible college, I said, some of you have never had to make this choice. You've, you've never had to make a choice where you're serving God or not. You're just following your parents. Nothing wrong with that. But you've never made the choice. You, you, you've never had to come face to face with something where that, <laughs> that, that you, you're going to go one of two ways, and you will go one of two ways, and you're going to have to make the choice yourself. And the choice is serving God or not serving God. Now that's what Joshua is doing here. Joshua is saying to the children of Israel, now you choose who you're going to serve because you can't serve both. You either choose to serve God and put Him first, or you choose to serve some other false gods, but you can't do both. You choose who you'll serve. But by the way, me and my house, we've done chosen. We're serving God. Now there's a truth in that. Nobody can make that choice for me but me. And I can't make that choice for anybody else. Listen, I can't make that choice for Elizabeth. I mean, one of the things that Elizabeth and I determined when we were dating is that we both wanted to serve God. It's a choice. Now, nobody can make that choice for you, and you can't make it for anybody else. And as parents, we sure don't like that. Sometimes we, we think about our children making bad mistakes, and we want to protect them from that. Any child that might say, well, I'm not going to serve God. I'm going to go out here and do what the devil wants me to do. Now, they don't say that sometimes. Sometimes they do say that. I've been dealing with this stuff long enough. Sometimes they actually say that. They do that for whatever reason. But it is a choice. It's a choice. Nobody can do it for you, and you can't do it for anyone else. Who are, you, who are you serving tonight? By the way, you're serving someone. You say, I'm here in church. Well, <laughs> who are you serving? Are you serving the Lord Jesus Christ, and are you looking to serve Him? Or are you serving someone else, and the only reason you're here tonight is because you sort of like it, or because you're trying to please somebody else? You see... Every man's work out his own salvation with fear and trembling. I've got to come to myself. Nobody can do that from me. I've got to choose for myself that I'm serving God if nobody else does. By the way, I found something out. That didn't end October the 2nd, 1977. Every morning I have to get up and choose to serve God today. Tomorrow morning night when my feet hit the floor, before that actually, I have already got to make up my mind, I'm serving God today. Now, nobody can do that for me but me. And nobody can do it for you but you. But i got to work out with fear and trembling this great salvation that I have, and it is great. But i got to choose Him every day. Number three, not only do I have to come to myself and choose for myself, 
I like this one. Go to the book of Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. Just keep going over in your Bible a little bit. You get through 1 Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. 1 2 Chronicles, you come to the book of Nehemiah. It's a great book. Now, Nehemiah chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I want you to see something that happened in Nehemiah. And I want you to see something that Nehemiah did for himself. And, and, and you see how these things are building. I must come to myself. I must choose for myself. You must come to yourself. You must choose for yourself. But there's something Nehemiah did with himself that's interesting. Verse number 1, Nehemiah chapter 5. And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. For there were that said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Some also uh, there were that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There were also that said, We have borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and our vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, and our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants, and some of our daughters are brought unto bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards." Now, by the way, verses 1 through 5, get the gist of what's happening here. The Jews have come back out of captivity. They're now in uh, their homeland. They have come back to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. And God has put them back there again. And as they've gotten back, they've got problems now. And there's been a great dearth. There's been a drought. Uh, some of them are having to borrow money to even live and... and and feed off of that to be able to buy food. And, and some of them are having to buy money to pay tribute their taxes. And they're in trouble. And by the way, the people they've been borrowing money from is the ones that should have been helping them. Other Jews. The ones that came out of bondage with them. So when Nehemiah hears this, something happens. Verse 6. And I was very angry when I heard their cry in these words. By the way, it ought to make you very angry when you hear about somebody being done wrong. When you hear about someone that's being done wrong and, they're, and they have no power within themselves and, and there's nothing they can do to help it, it ought to do something to you. You ought not just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to it and walk away. Now Nehemiah gets angry when he hears it, but I want you to notice what Nehemiah did. Verse 7, it's an interesting verse. Then... I consulted with myself. <laughs> Interesting passage. And then I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said to them, You exact usury, every one of you of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. Now I want you to notice what Nehemiah did in, in the very first part of verse number 7. He hears about something wrong, he sees something very wrong that's being done, and it says, I consulted with myself. And by the way, you and I ought to have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us as children of God. And when we see something that is wrong, you know the very first thing we ought to do? We ought to ask ourselves and consult with ourselves, what does the Bible say about that? 
There ought to be some consulting with yourself every once in a while. You see, Nehemiah is taking the, the high road here, and he's standing all alone whenever he says what he does here. He sees some wrong that's been done, and he consulted himself and says, I'm not going to stand by and watch that happen. I'm just not going to do it. It's wrong. It should not be done. And God doesn't want it done. It's against the Scripture. And he consulted with himself, and he made a choice about it. Now, I'm going to have to come to myself. I'm going to have to choose who I serve. But sometimes I've got to deal with Mike, and I've got to consult with Mike that I'm going to stand if nobody else does. Now, nobody likes those positions. I don't think Nehemiah asked for that position. And whenever that comes, you've got to consult with yourself and say, well, just what does the Bible say? What does the Word of God say? I'm going to do what the Bible says no matter what. Now, you're going to come to those places in life. You're going to come to where you need to come to yourself. You're going to come where you need to choose the Lord. And sometimes you're going to have to consult with yourself and say, I tell you what, that's wrong. That's wrong. And I'm just going to do what's right, no matter what. Those are hard things to do. By the way, nobody can do it for me but me, and nobody can do it for you but you. And number four, now watch how these things sort of go together. I want you to go to another passage of Scripture. I like this passage. I want you to go back in your Bible, 1 Samuel chapter number 18. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you sort of know which direction we're going, what's happening in 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18 is, is, is David as a teenager after he's killed Goliath in chapter 17. So in chapter 18, we, we're going to begin to meet David. Now, by the way, I think David's already come to himself out on that shepherd's field. and He's already chosen. He's going to serve God. And by the way, I can take chapter 17 and show you that he consulted himself when he came to the battle. When David walked up to the battle in chapter 17 and he got up there that day and he heard Goliath, he didn't ask anybody else what needed to be done. He just done what was right. So the first three things David's already done in his life, because nobody could do it for him but David. But now David faces something different. You see, as we grow in our walk, there are some things that I, that, and, that I must work out my own salvation. Nobody else can do it for me. I, I've got to come to myself, I've got to choose for myself, and I've got to consult with myself. But by the way, David does something, I've got to constrain myself. There's going to come some times in life when I've just got to Take a deep breath, take a step backwards, and ask God to help me be quiet. And I've got to make the right decisions in life. Now watch this. You're in chapter 18. I hope I've got your, 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 your imagination sort of whetted now. We're going to get three verses out of this chapter. Verse 5. And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and the sight of all of Saul's servants. Now I want you to notice something. David is a teenager whenever he killed Goliath. He comes back from this battle. He's never been in any kind of training. He's never been any kind of soldier. And the very first thing that happens is David puts him over everyone. 
And he behaved himself wisely. He constrained himself. He isn't prideful. He isn't boastful. He isn't pushy, which is all human nature to have done what he did and then be put in a position he was in. But he constrained himself. And he behaved himself wisely. There are times that God's going to give you and I some lifting up. God's going to put us in a place to be able to take care of things. You, you live long enough, I guarantee you, God's going to put you somewhere. And you're going to be put in a position like David was put here. And when you get that position, behave yourself wisely. Constrain yourself. David did. The position begins to change. Look, if you will, in verse number 14. Well, let's go back. Verse 12. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him, removed him from him and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Now I want you to see what's taking place now. David has behaved himself wisely. Saul has put him over all the army. Then Saul gets afraid of him, and he demotes him. You see what just happened? He demotes him. Now what does David do? He doesn't act crazy. He doesn't get mad. He doesn't get bitter. He doesn't get even. He behaves himself wisely and he constrains himself again. Sometimes you're going to be lifted up and you've got to constrain yourself. And sometimes you're going to be put down and you've got to constrain yourself. Now nobody can do that for you but you. Nobody can do it for me but me. Now watch how it ends this chapter, verse number 30. Let's just read verse 29. I'll help you understand verse 30. And Saul was yet the more afraid of David, and Saul became David's enemy continually. Boy, David's in trouble now. Not only in trouble with Saul, he's in trouble with his enemies. Verse 30. Then the princes of the Philistines went forth, and it came to pass after they went forth that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by. Now look at this. Here, Saul is his enemy, and now the enemy of his people, when it says they go forth, they're going forth to battle, and David behaves himself wisely. He constrains himself. I wish it wasn't true, but you're going to find in life that there's going to be situations that arise, sometimes you're going to be uplifted, constrain yourself. Sometimes you're going to be demoted, constrain yourself. Sometimes you're going to find yourself where it looks like an impossible situation and everybody is against you. I've got to constrain myself and behave myself wisely. Nobody can do that for me but me. No, no, nobody can control my actions but me. Nobody can control your actions but you. I can't blame what I do. I can't blame it on Elizabeth. I can't blame it on my parents. I can't blame it on my children. I can't blame it on my enemies. It's me. 
And David behaved himself wisely. He constrained himself, and he still did what was right. And his name was much set by because he did what was right. He did what was right when he was up here. He did what was right when he was down here. He constrained himself. The truth of the matter is, I've got this great salvation I have to work out in my mind. I have to come to myself. I have to choose for myself. I have to consult with myself on what's right and wrong, and I have to constrain myself. Now, number five, there's one final thing that I must do. 1 Samuel chapter 30, I want you to turn there. There's something else you're going to have to do sometime in your life. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 30, I want to begin reading in verse 1 now. Let me set the background before I begin reading. In this part of 1 Samuel, David is now running from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him on a number of occasions, and God has delivered him. And David has said, there's just a step between me and death, and he's went into the land of the Philistines, and he's been there for 18 months. One of the kings of the Philistines has given him a city named Ziglag, and that's where David and his men have been. David and 600 men. Chapter 29, David almost went to war with the Philistines against Israel, but God wouldn't let him. So the Philistines sent him home. They're coming back to Ziglag now. He's been out of his homeland 18 months. He's not where God wants him. But something's about to happen he couldn't foresee. So David and his men, his 600 men, are coming back to Ziglag, verse 1 of chapter 30. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziglag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziglag and smitten Ziglag and burned it with fire. And had taken the women captives and that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captive, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of the people, was all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Now I want you to sort of get the picture of what's taking place here. These 600 men have followed David to the ends of the earth, so to speak. He's led them in battle and time after time, and they have left Israel and come to Ziglag because of Saul, and they followed him. They've taken their families and they've followed him. And they come to Ziglag, and everything's gone. Their families are taken their wives, their children. What a hard thing that is. And the people, those men that followed David, those 600 men, are now talking and they say, I tell you what, let's just stone David, it's his fault. 
If we hadn't followed him, if we'd have stayed in Israel, this would never have happened. But we followed him. Let's just stone David. Now, when you think of it, David's lost his family like they've lost their family. He's lost everything they've lost. And now they're saying, let's just stone David. And the Bible says, and David encouraged himself. He comforted himself in the Lord his God. Unfortunately, if you live long enough, you're going to come to a time like this. You're going to come to a time where you feel like everybody in the world is against you. I wish it didn't happen. When that happens, you have to do something for yourself that no one else can do for you. You have to encourage yourself in the Lord your God. Nobody else can do that for you. Nobody else can encourage you but you. There's a truth in that. You see, every once in a while we, we have this idea that it's up to us to encourage and lift somebody else up. And we are to do that at a certain extent. But the truth of the matter is, nobody can encourage me in the Lord my God but me. Nobody can encourage you in the Lord your God but you. You may come to a place, it may not be like David, the city may not be burned, your family may not be captive. But it might be. I was working on this message, and just think about this. What, what, what do you think some of those Jews over in Israel thought on October 7th when their family was taken? Sort of like David here. You understand? There's going to be some times in your life when things are going to happen to you. There's going to be times in your life when there are people that you thought or your friends are going to say, I'll tell you what, the best thing for us to do is just kill him. Don't turn against you. Now that may be that they're hurting as well as you are. David's men loved him. Eventually they followed him and got everything back. It's a great chapter. You ought to go home and read it tonight. Works out real good. Worked out good because David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Nobody could do that for David but David. Then David encouraged his men. God gave great victory. The truth of the matter is, there are five things nobody can do for me but me. I must come to myself. Nobody can do that for me. I must choose to serve the Lord. Nobody can do that for me but me. I must consult with myself sometimes and make a stand. And nobody can do that for me but me. Sometimes I must constrain myself just to tamp Mike down. Nobody can really do that for me but me. And sometimes I must comfort myself and encourage myself in the Lord my God. I have found that all five of those times that I've got to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. I have a great God. He loves me. You have a great God and He loves you. He does love you. He wants to help you. He wants to uplift you. He wants to strengthen you. But there are some things that only you can do for you. Somebody can encourage you. Somebody can pray with you. Hold your hand, put their arm around you, and try to help you. 
But in the end, you must do these things for yourself. And by the way, you can't make nobody else do it. You can pray for them, encourage them, but in the end, you cannot do it for them. Five things you must do for yourself. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I appreciate you being here tonight. I'm trying to get